Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to highlight The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther, a book that we're now selling as part of the Christian Heritage series. Luther replies to the arguments of Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus was the most distinguished scholar of Luther's day, but that only made Luther all the more eager to defend the truth. Erasmus argued that all the commands in Scripture clearly showed that man had the ability to obey God through his own power. In this work, Luther replies that such an argument emptied the gospel of its power, and that instead man's will is bound captive to sin, and that only through the gospel are we freed from its power. While this rambunctious and punchy book is entertaining, Luther never loses sight of the heart of the matter. Man's inability to earn his salvation and his absolute need for grace and forgiveness. This book is part of the Christian Heritage series, where for the next four months or so, we'll be dropping one brand new book in the series a month, which means February's will drop at any moment. So be on the lookout for that a really big author and someone we're excited about. And without further ado, the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 131, 131. Hard to believe that I've done this 131 times, but I have. So as, um, as I'm recording this, is right in the aftermath of uh, the New Hampshire primary, and, and so politics is all the thing. Um, and basically, uh, Trump has the um, Republican nomination sewn up, right? There's no drama over on that side, so people are fighting it out over on the Democratic side. And you've got people who are extreme, and you have people who are pretending to be moderate, and people who are maybe kind of actually moderate. But you have to realize that there's an Overton window on these things, and um, moderation ain't what it used to be. Let's just put it that way. Take, for an example, all the candidates are hardline pro-abortion advocates, with the, the only exception that I'm aware of is the representative from Hawaii, Tulsi Gabbard, who's down, you know, in the 1% um, category. And, and, um, she, and she allows that there might be some restrictions on abortions um, later in, in, the, in a pregnancy. Um, so she's pro-abortion. She's, she's pro-choice like the others. But she's not um, uh, celebrating abortion as sort of the non-negotiable, we must have this. So uh, that's an example of how all the candidates, including the moderates on abortion, are not all the, all the main candidates, all the viable candidates, um, moderate ones and extreme ones, are all extreme when it comes to abortion. And then you have people who are um, openly socialist, like Bernie Sanders, and his economic policies are extreme. And you have others who are as extreme as he is, you know, wanting to capture the, uh, um, the, the support of the hard left. 
because that's where all the energy is. Uh, they want to capture that support, but they then they don't want to be stuck with, with actually being committed to doing something crazy. Um, so the Democrats have a real problem here, um, and and that is there are ideas that are extreme, and if if Bernie Sanders' policies were adopted, they would turn the United States into Venezuela. Might take a lot longer, but it, that's that's where it's headed. And some states, individual states, are already uh, well on the road to that that destination. So you have an ex- if you have an extremist, an extreme leftist, you have someone who's extremely committed to ideas that won't work. If someone were to run as an extreme conservative, um, libertarian when it came to basic free market economics and socially conservative and you know that that sort of thing, and let's say he was a hardline conservative, uh, his extremism has uh, one advantage over the extremism of the left. His extremism has the advantage that it would work. It, it, it wouldn't bring uh, wouldn't bring about a disaster. So if you cut regulations, as uh, uh, now Trump is no true blue conservative, but Trump has cut regulations and done a number of things that have caused the economy to do what it's doing. Now, what the PR guys in political campaigns are advise people to do is in the Republican Party, you they want you to run to the right. And then govern to the middle. In the Democratic Party, they want you to run to the left and then govern to the middle. Now, the problem is, uh, it appears to me that the uh, hard left base in the Democratic Party will not allow that second part. They will not allow that governing to the middle. And someone like Bernie Sanders wouldn't want to govern to the middle. He actually. And that's one of his big advantages in this, actually, is that he actually appears to believe this stuff. And he's kind of an elderly gentleman to be believing that kind of thing, uh, but he does. A large part of his attractiveness to young voters is they see him as an idealist who actually thinks that, as opposed to uh, people, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is collapsing, um, uh, was. Wanting was competing with Sanders for the, for the vote on the left was competing with him, but she didn't appear to uh, to have any of the sincerity, and and that whole thing is falling apart. Joe Biden was sort of a mainstream Democrat who was being driven to the left, being driven to things, to say things that uh, he didn't really believe. But it looks like that's all a moot question. Um, because he appears to be uh, collapsing as well. So we are going to have, I think, a, um, an election of very, very substantial differences. Um, Trump isn't a conservative extremist, but he's a populist, you know, he's, he's a populist extremist, and he sounds more extreme than he actually is. So there should be, there should be a real a real clash because there's going to be a very stiff resistance on the left if an extremist gets that nomination. There's going to be extreme resistance to moving to the middle 
and there will be extreme resistance on the right uh, against moving to the middle. So um, you, you kids might want to buckle up back there. Continuing on with podcast episode 131, this is uh, our hamartiology section, and the word here is astorgos, astorgos, and this means without natural affection, and the word is found in two places in the New Testament, and we can tell what kind of sin it is by the company it keeps. In Romans, Paul includes it in a detailed list that includes this verse without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. That's in Romans 1.31. And he does something very similar in 2 Timothy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. That's 2 Timothy 3.3. Now, without natural affection, that's very interesting. Those familiar with the works of C.S. Lewis likely know uh, his book, The Four Loves, which treats agape, phileo, eros, and storge. Those are, the, um, those are four distinct kinds of love. Storge is natural affection. Storge is natural affection and includes the comfortable, the usual, the customary. You can have that kind of love for someone you don't really even like. They're just part of the framework of your mind. So, storge is natural affection. In the Greek language, the prefix aw is a term of negation. So, um, theist is someone who believes in God. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. So, the term ah is uh, a term of negation. Now, That means someone without this kind of natural affinity, in this instance, uh, it means someone without this kind of natural affinity uh, for what surrounds him. So, ah, storgos. So, storgos is the natural affection part, and the ah is the without natural affection. When someone who doesn't have an affection for his hometown, something is wrong with him. He's without natural affection. If he doesn't have a favorite pair of jeans or slippers or chair in the study, something is still wrong. This extends to people, and it extends to household pets. We consequently have a responsibility to be loyal to our customary surroundings, and that loyalty should be born of gratitude. So uh, a mother who doesn't bond with her child is without natural affection. A father who doesn't want to spend time with his kids is without natural affection. Someone who is aloof and above it all uh, and not connected to anything is without natural affection. And notice that this is, uh, it's a bad sin. So Romans one thirty one without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Look at the company it's in. It's on covenant breakers on one side and implacable on the other. And in the other uh, verse, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good. Being without natural affection is not a good thing at all. So in our book review um, uh, this time around, I'd like to just say a few things about uh, a, a book by Chesterton 
Um, and the book is What I Saw in America. Chesterton toured over here and spent some time in America, spent some time in American hotels, spent time interacting with um, American businessmen. And, you know, the, uh, and he has a, a truly insightful eye. And, um, and you have to make some adjustments because he was making these observations coming up on a century, I guess, uh, ago. He, he, um, and so there have been uh, transformations in American customs and, and patterns and so on. But it's still remarkable how much like our great-grandparents, uh, modern Americans, are. Um, he, uh, Chesterton writes with a sympathetic eye. In other words, he's certainly prepared to give credit where credit is due. He's certainly prepared to say uh, Americans do this uh, better than the English do. And, but he's also prepared to say, I think we do it better back home than I think we do a better job than the Americans do. He uh, points out something uh, that I have noticed. One of the, one of the um, features of, a, of American life that Chesterton points to is what you might call the business hustle. Um, Everybody's a man with a mission. There's a lot of uh, a lot of people hustling, going after what, as Chesterton describes it, the almighty dollar. Um, but he points to something that I've I've noticed before, and I think that Americans are not. Um, how, how do I put this? It's as though the dollar is our way of keeping score. Um, so there are misers in the old, you know, Scrooge McDuck sense, where they they like sitting on a pile of gold and and you know, throwing gold coins in the air, where the money is the sort of the direct idol. But in many cases, the amount of money that you accumulate or the amount of money you make on a deal is simply a way of keeping score. The real idol is the competition with the other guy or, or the other company or the, the guy across the street. It's, uh, there's an ambition, there's a hustle, there's an aggressiveness. And um, and we use money like they were poker chips. And of course, some people like what the money can get you. But uh, in a lot of respects, the, uh, the worship of the almighty dollar is not, as Chesterton would put it, it's not a worship of the dollar per se. It's not miserly. It's um, there's something, else is, something else is going on. Chesterton makes some fun observations about the uh, uh, nature of. American hotels, um, and how they are all, <laughs> how they're all laid out. And, uh, you know, you same layout on the third floor is on the 10th floor. And, and of course he's talking about, um, hotels, which in his day would have been new. And in our day, they're the, they're the vintage hotels that we go back to, but we're still doing the same thing where the second floor and the fifth floor are, are identical. Well, except for the except for the ice machine. The ice machine is only on every other floor. If you want Chesterton to help you out in um, uh, walking you through some of the uh, odd quirks you might have if you're an American, uh, I'd recommend this book, What I Saw in America, G.K. Chesterton.